0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past and future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. Our guest today is Jesse Draper, founding partner of Halogen Ventures. Halogen Ventures is a Los Angeles-based venture capital fund focused on investing in early-stage consumer technology startups with a female in the founding team. Some of their investments include Hopskip Drive, Clover Letter, and Binti. Previously, Jessie was an actress and founded-hosted The Valley Girl Show, where she interviewed some of the biggest names in business, entertainment, government, and technology. She's also a fourth generation VC. We discuss why female led businesses represent such a massive opportunity, Los Angeles as a tech hub, and great advice for founders when asking questions to VCs. Without further ado, here's Jesse. Jesse, thank you so much. For joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. This is just like the whole podcast is just everything I live and breathe.
0: Talk to you a little bit about your attraction for acting and then why you made the shift to VC.
1: Yeah, you know, I grew up in Silicon Valley uh, around incredible entrepreneurs and investors, but it was early days, like pre-2008, obviously. Um, I am 36 years old. So really technology was all I knew. I just had grown up around startups. I was very familiar with how a business was funded and grew. Um, I worked for startups. Um, My dad is a venture capitalist, but I didn't think that I could be a venture capitalist. I'm actually a fourth generation investor and the first female, but I was, as you were alluding to, it was not a direct route for me because I was female and I didn't see any women around me doing that. And I thought, oh, well, this is all I know, but what do women do? And so as a little girl, they say, you can be what you can see. And my aunt, my mom worked incredibly hard, much harder than I raising four children. My aunt was a very successful actress in the 80s. Her name was Polly Draper and she was on a show called 30 something which Shameless Plug is coming back to Netflix. I just thought as a little girl, you know, I was like, "Oh, that's what women do. They're actresses." And so ever since I was like 8 or something, um she has this little thing framed in her house that said, "I want to be an actress like my aunt Polly or vice president." Because when you're 8, I don't know, vice president sounded bigger than president to me, I don't know. So I was like, "Okay, I'm going to be an actress. So I sort of always focused on that in the back of my head. So I went to UCLA for theater, film, and television. Um, I had had many internships, you know, working with various startups and around technology companies, but I was like, I'm going to be an actress. Um, And I kind of do everything full throttle. I graduated and I just went into the entertainment industry. I was auditioning. um, I was on a Nickelodeon show for a little while. Um, I actually had some pretty great success I think as an actress I worked really really hard I um I got on a whole in a whole bunch of movies I would do things like every once in a while an actor will be like hey can you give me some advice I'm going into acting and I'm like just work harder than they do it turns out people are very very lazy. And so if you can basically say, I'm the best for the role and you don't have to pay a casting director, I would like read people's scripts and be like, what are you working on? Um, Oh, Hey, do you really want to pay a casting director to cast that, you know, three line waitress role? Like I could play that. I could play that. Definitely. You know, and they'd be like, Oh, that's, that's a great idea. And so I got a lot of roles that way. I was just kind of like hustling as an actress, (laughs) but I quickly learned, I'd go to these cattle calls, uh, they were, you know, like 500 people who looked just like me were probably much more talented. I would walk into the room, they'd be like, turn around. They wouldn't even ask my name. It was very um, degrading as a woman. And I just realized I was doing the Nickelodeon show at that time and I'd film six months on and then six months off. And so during the six months off, I'd audition. And so during my final season, or it was the year before my final season, I said, you know what, this year I'm going to do something different. Instead of auditioning, I'm going to kind of combine my two worlds and create a talk show around these incredible technology entrepreneurs that I grew up around. And this was like early, early days of YouTube and Google and Facebook and no one quite knew about technology like they do today. Like they didn't have the Silicon Valley TV show. And so I started the first ever tech talk show. Now, as you know, there's quite a few, but I know it was the first one. Cause I had like Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google on my show who I thought was absolutely incredible. And no one cared, like no one cared that I had this incredible, uh, on, <laughs> on my show. Um, and I was like, you know, Like, ah yeah, I have this little talk show out of my like, you know, parents' garage. And I hired my brothers, quickly fired my brothers because they were in high school and they'd like get bored during interviews and like put the camera down. And I'm like, ah, as you saw, like, I have Elon Musk here, like, please stop. So that that took me into this world that I really knew I was supposed to go into. And I understood these entrepreneurs and I was trying to make it approachable. I was trying to make it more fun. I think a lot of people were overwhelmed by the idea of technology. Like, what is that? Like, how do you start a company? And so I try to break it down. I did that show for five seasons. I worked, it was like my own entrepreneurial journey. I was trying to find dis- distribution wherever I could. So I did 35 different distribution deals deals all very non-traditional at the time. It was like, where can I find eyeballs? Oh, Forbes just launched video on their website. I'll start doing some videos for Forbes. Oh, Mashable is this new tech news blog. I'll start doing some videos for them. I got, I did that airports and hotels deal where you get on all it's like millions of views kind of passive eyeballs so i ultimately took it to tv we were nominated for an emmy and after two seasons of the five seasons i did the show i was really frustrated because i was like i didn't think i could go into this business because there were no women and i'm i'm only interviewing men And so I made an initiative to interview 50% women on the show. And it was like I had created this magical magnet and thousands of women all of a sudden were flocking to the show. And they were way too early for the show. Sometimes I'd be like, "Uh, you're too early for the show. Love what you're doing. Can I write you a pennies check uh, and be a strategic investor? Uh, I didn't have a lot of money. I was like, $1,000, $5,000, $1,000, $5,000, whatever I could afford at the time, sometimes I'd just negotiate some sweat equity and say, hey, I'll get you media exposure and um, I'll get you out there if you know, I can get some advisory shares. And some of those deals ended up doing really, really well for me. One, I sold for a 25X return on the secondary market in less than 18 months. And I used that little track record then to raise my first fund because at the time it was like, I had tried every which way to make money in media and I had been online, offline, on television, and like back to television from Nickelodeon and the back to like media, as I'm sure you're a little aware, it's just a really broken industry. There's, you know, you, you can really only make money with advertising. You know, the network we were on still owes us money. We were barely breaking even. They wanted us to launch nationally, but because in syndication, you kind of launch one city at a time and you have to have a sponsor greenlight the whole, the whole country. And really even like Ellen DeGeneres is in like 12 to 20 cities or something across the country. It's not actually every single city because advertisers target different markets. So I was just like, wait, you want me to launch other cities? And then I have to like re-edit. I'm already staying up all night, you know, writing, booking, overseeing, editing on the show. And I got pregnant with my first kid and my husband's like, so... You didn't come home last night because you were working and you didn't come home all basically last week because you were working because I'd have to turn these episodes around in a week. And it was a very difficult thing to do because we had a lot of editing and had to put the music closed captioning, which is such a nightmare. And so I kind of hit this moment where I was like, you know, my husband points out to me, he's like, you know, your investments are doing a lot better than your show is. (laughs) I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be honest with you. (laughs) And um, he's like, you're pregnant, you need to chill out. Not that I chilled out at all. But he's like, you need to you need to pick one of these professions. Basically, you can't do everything. And he was right. And because I created this nice network of women and this female ecosystem. I mean, I remember when I started calling for women on the show, it was impossible to get them like these women who were CEOs, like the five that were CEOs at the time that you would have heard of, didn't want to come on a, a, a sort of light, fun talk show. They were like, I have worked so hard to get where I am. You are not going to mess it up for me. I want to look like I'm a man. Like a man. And I'm just sitting there, like begging for mentors, begging for women to come on the show because I knew I had that problem when I was a kid and I didn't want other girls to feel that way where they couldn't go into tech. So I started calling to just all women everywhere and I am forever grateful to the women of fashion technology because it was Jen Hyman from rent the runway Rebecca minkoff the guilt girls who made it okay for them Sheryl Sandberg to come on the show before she'd written lean in or anything and that all of a sudden it took off it was like Jessica Alba and Mark Cuban and you know the CTO of the United States of America and I realized I'd like hit on some pulse with this like women and I could help in two ways with women running companies, one media exposure and two funding. And so took my little track record, raised a fund. I pitched probably 500 investors, closed maybe 50 of them. I feel like those are important numbers to share because some people are like, so you raised a fund, I can go raise a fund. And then they come back to me after like three meetings and they're like, everyone said no. I'm like, well, how many people did you talk to? You know, And so, so you, you should plan on having about 100 meetings, I think, but yeah, we focus on consumer tech. We now have about 62 companies. We're on our second fund. Um, we're investors in companies like The Skim, Carbon 38, which is an international athleisure marketplace, partially owned by Footlocker. Um, We are investors in Glam Squad, Hop Skip Drive, which provides transportation for foster children across the United States. Yeah, we're just getting going.
0: Amazing. Incredible how you're able to use your platform to really help and inspire women. What are some things that you think need to happen to make venture capital maybe more inclusive
1: yeah no i think a lot needs to change so little venture funding you know it's less than two percent is actually going towards women and they're starting companies they're starting multi-billion dollar companies and it's a matter of lack of funding and there's something that doesn't add up to me which is 80 plus percent of purchasing decisions in households are made by women yet women with a new wild and crazy say fashion company idea can't get funded because men are controlling the majority of those dollars and they'll be like, Oh, my wife should look at it. Oh, um, I'll have my assistant look at it. And while I do think that's good, you should make sure that you hit the target target demographic and you may not always be that and collect some data there. Like the guys making the decisions are the guys making the decisions and they Um, They need to bring more women sort of like under the fold there. What we have found that I'm so excited about is we looked for women. We went after this, this different opportunity. Instead of going down Sand Hill Road and looking for like the typical Stanford, Harvard student, and sure, we have a couple of those. But we looked for women. And because we started investing in women and the best talent and the best companies we could find with a female on the leadership team, we have over 50% minority-led companies. We have ages that range from 24 to 65. Uh, in terms of our founders. And I really believe diversity breeds success. And so I think you have to look elsewhere to find that diversity. You can't just go after the same thing everyone else is. So that needs to change. People need to just start, you know, looking in new places. I mean, recently I was talking to two guys from a PE fund and they're like, but there's just no qualified female candidates. And I'm like, well, I, I'm I'm happy to send you some because as a VC, you're kind of this headhunter too. Like, you have 62 companies. You want your companies to have great talent, and so people also send you a lot of resumes. So I feel like I place people weekly um, at new jobs. And I'm like, I have plenty of candidates who want who are great females who work at a fund, and they'll be like, Oh, well, we really need like a Harvard MBA. I'm like, I can find you one of those. Well, we really need them to have some like industrial experience. I'll be like, I can find you one of those. And I, I mean it blows my mind that they won't just look elsewhere um, and try to build their networks in new ways. I mean, women own the network. There's always been like the female book club. And I know like my husband is jealous of, of like my book club. And you know, he's like, I need a book club. Like what's my book club? Like women get the networking thing. And I think that men don't quite see it always that way. Like they're like, I have my network. I feel safe in my network. I feel safe with my group of friends and really you need to like reach outside so one start networking dudes and then and by the way i love men i have three male ceos in our portfolio which i i like to always point out with a female founder as well and i have two little boys and i have an incredible husband who does 50 percent of the workload at home um, and he's the reason my kids are not popping into this zoom call and I think that, you know, we really need men in the conversation would be the second thing I would say. Like, don't feel like a women's event shouldn't be inclusive of men. Come in, hear what they're talking about and try and just listen and understand and see how you can champion women in your circles too and understand that, Um, Women similarly work with other nationalities and just like more diversity around you will make you be more successful because you'll see more perspectives, especially when you're building a business. The other thing I, um, I would say is we need more funding for women, but that starts at the LP level. So those are institutions, endowments you know, like from universities fund to funds. And what happens is I go pitch these fund to funds and I have a track record and they all say, well, you need a track record. I say, okay, well, I've had six exits. Like, you know, we're doing pretty well. And, uh, you know, they say, okay, well, you need a team. I'm like, okay, well, I have a team. You know, they tell me these things that I'm like, check, 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 check. I'm on my second fund. And they just are like, well, we're already invested in you know, say Sequoia, these five funds. And basically that's going to happen for the next 30 to 40 years. Um, We're going to continue investing in their funds. And I'm like, okay, well, what about the next Sequoias? Like, how are you going to get into those? They're like, oh, well, that's for our emerging managers program. Okay. Well, what, like, what do I need to do to get into your emerging managers program? They say, well, we need to get to know you over the next five to 10 years. Okay. So that's not emerging managers. So that would be like, established managers, like that would be managers who have raised multiple funds and, um, probably won't need you in five to 10 years. So there's, there's no opening. And, um, also like, I mean, I went into one pension fund in the middle of the country somewhere to pitch them. And it was a whole bunch of, you know, older men who just are not quite as open to women running anything and spit out their coffee at me. You know, they were like, wait, I just saw your deck. You only invest in women. Like it was horrifying. And I'm like, by the way, this is not like a bad investment. Like women raise half as much money. They double the returns. This is a deal flow. Like we're, we're seeing more deals than Sequoia in early stage because I, I literally can't keep up because women are starting companies and want women investors. And so I think there's a big opportunity there. We really need the LP level to change. The good news is men like you who are younger and like build, helping build this whole community up. Like I was so grateful in that meeting because at the end of that meeting with the pension fund, this younger guy came in and he was like, oh, my wife uses that company. Oh, I know that company too. Oh. And it was like, okay we're going to be okay because like the next generations of men respect women and like are ready to include us. But uh, we really need to change it at that level. So let me know if you have any solutions because it's been, it's been a crazy, crazy world out there.
0: No, for sure. First of all, thanks so much for, for really just opening up about this issue. I spoke with um, Soraya at Trailmix and she was saying like the similar things, like one of the things that she was, she was saying, I'm sure you've also been this situation where I think she went to like a dinner. It was 25, 30 GPs um, and from different funds. And there was three women in the audience. And there was this man on stage who was one of the fund managers of a fund of fund. And he was saying how this is networking. I invested in my, in these GPs. And then I asked GPs for references to other GPs. And then I invested in those, in, in those funds as well. And Soraya was like, well, if, everyone you're being introduced to are men or are only white, then you're not actually going to reach that diversity. And that's not truly networking.
1: It's so true. It is. And it's about networking. It's about like as a VC, I think you you put yourself in a position to meet as many people as possible. So anyone who's limiting that as an investor in general, anyone who's limiting that in any way is, there's a real problem they're in the wrong profession because if you're saying oh i have to approve if you introduce me to someone or they don't have an entry point on their website where they'll just take cold pitches and they never check that or whatever like we try to make sure we're easily accessible i mean i've taken pitches through LinkedIn, Instagram, and you can also just cold pitch us through our website. And we really go through those because I think everyone needs a shot and not everybody knows me, not everybody knows an investor. So it's about making sure you're yeah, meeting people off of your typical path. And in Silicon Valley, that's male to mail to mail to mail, And it's the same investor to the same founder over and over and over.
0: So I know you're also based in LA. Why are you really excited about the L- about LA as a venture hub?
1: Yeah, I mean, I love LA. I went to UCLA and um, I think that when I was just getting going here um, and I was kind of like going from entertainment to tech, uh, I just remember I attended the first Twitter conference and it was down here. And you started slowly seeing people. I mean, that must have been in 2000. 2010 maybe um and it was at the Skirball Center and people were just figuring out Twitter and all the panelists were like people who had the most Twitter followers and how they did it and you'd never heard of any of these people but it was like you know people who just like tweeted they tweeted all the time and that was one of the first times I saw just entertainment and tech crossover in so many ways like media and tech and I I was like ah this is starting to really turn into like an interesting hub of technology that's different from the one I grew up in. Um, And I did find that it was much more diverse. And since then, you know, I have to say, I'm so thankful too. I reached out to Mark Mark Schuster when I decided I was gonna stay down here, who's at Upfront. And he always included me in all of these technology events. And he's really pioneered leading LA as one of the most diverse cities by just engaging a community. And we, I'm part of Pledge LA, where we make sure that we invest in diversity across our funds and we support diversity in our community here. So I think, one, you have the entertainment industry down here, which is just like, we're in consumer tech. And as I've learned from my personal experience in media, media is simply a vessel for which to sell things through. So if you're in consumer and you're not in LA, I don't know what you're doing. And then, two, it's an incredibly diverse community. And I don't think any other place um, in the country is as diverse in terms of our tech ecosystem here, which again breeds success. And it's a really, it's just a much healthier technology community, I think. And we're really, You know, it's been so fun to watch over the last couple of years, like Amazon pop pop up and Google pop up. And, you know, something's happening when you see all the major players with enormous offices here. But it's a it's a great community also just in terms of, of travel and deals and other investors like. People always come through LA. It's a great it's a great hub. Um, you know you'll reach them at some point. Uh, not to say I don't travel, but today I don't.
0: <laughs> I've also hunkered down here for sure. Wanted to know your thoughts around to what you find right now exciting in media or things you're looking at.
1: Yeah, good question. We have a great deal called Squad that um, is... It's sort of like a Zoom meets um, house party for teenagers. And so obviously that has taken off significantly uh, just today. Yeah, in terms of media, what we're seeing, I basically made a recommendation also in the beginning of COVID to all of our companies. And I said, I don't care if you are not a media company, if you are not a sexy company, if you think you're not sexy because you're B2B, you are because During this time, everyone's eyeballs are online and you should get out there and be as present as possible on all of the social channels. And I think it's been an interesting time because we all have consumed more screen time (laughs) and just content than ever before. So where I was actually very concerned about dipping my toe into any... Uh, media oriented investments in the past, because I know how difficult it is to create a sustainable business model in media today. It's a great place to be. I mean, think about how media translates from education now all the way to, you know, your social everything. And I think that it media spans every industry today
0: absolutely you know how we're also changing to wanting to find real conversations and make and actually real meet real people online rather than just posting just a post uh, another another vc that i had on he thinks of it as just like empty calories of just kind of passively consuming
1: you know what i would say with the empty calories so i had that moment too where you're like i just googled all night about how to clean my makeup brushes and i was like that was a waste of time and Why was I Googling that period? And I started thinking about like, I'm not allowed to Google anything stupid like that. Like I'm just not allowed to, if I'm going to be spending screen time, like let's solve big problems. And so I've gone the last three months, I have become obsessed with solving um, the issues in the foster care system. And I just read this incredible book called To the End of June, which I recommend if you don't know anything about the foster care system and all the issues, it's a good overview. And also I would recommend watching the Gabriel Hernandez uh, Netflix documentary. Yeah, especially about the system and like these stories, while they're difficult to watch, and as a mom, it was so tough to even like, I was like, what am I doing to myself? I'm about to watch this like kid who was locked in a cupboard. Like, what am I doing? But those stories like I would encourage you to like press play because you need to learn about this you need to hear these stories and that's been a beautiful thing about media during COVID is like these stories are being told the Jeffrey Epstein like documentary oh my god like those stories are being told he got away with so much and that won't happen again you know that's not to say more of these aren't going to come out but like that won't happen again because he, I mean, I hope that doesn't happen again. Like, I mean, international sex trafficking, I don't know. Um, but he, that was like a story of money and power. You look at all the Harvey Weinstein, um, issues as well. And I think these stories, like we need to pay more attention to. So if you are consuming and consumption is becoming your disease, um, just, I would challenge you to learn as much as you can about some subject that you know
0: nothing about really great points all that wanted to talk about deal size your stage and overall how you think about the early stage investing landscape
1: yeah um so we invest we write two hundred fifty thousand to a million dollar checks for initial investment and then we save some for follow-on i kind of say internally And now on your podcast, like our founders really have to prove themselves to us in the first two years. We need to make sure that we're seeing, you know, the growth that we had planned with them and that they... Uh, you know, you just recognize patterns in those first couple of years. And so, if they really prove themselves to us, we see the growth we were hoping for, we see uh, that they're going to make this company happen no matter what, um, we'll follow on as well. But we only do that to about a third of our companies. And I'm not going to tell you which ones because I want them all to think that they have to work hard. <laughs> For that extra investment. But we, uh, you know, I think about early stage. So we get in usually pre seed, seed. Uh, Sometimes we're the first institutional money in and we invest alongside some big angels. I really like to get into the first or second mover in a space. I like the kind of wild and crazy ideas. So, for example, um, You know, six years ago, I saw the first plus-size women's clothing line uh, direct to consumer online called Eloquy. We sold it. I I always say like we sold it, and I feel guilty about that. It's like the founder worked very hard to sell it, but they sold it to Walmart, uh, which was a nice return for us. And that. Then all of a sudden, I started seeing all of these plus size women's clothing lines. And because we sold one, everyone was pitching them to us. And I'm like, well, I think you have a great business. And there's probably a lot more opportunity here. We were in the first one. So this is less interesting to us. So we really like to see like what's going to be the big deal in the next five to 10 years. And so I invest one by looking that way, like what's sort of like the first or second mover in a space. And then another way we look at investing in early stage is like, how can we solve problems? Like I just brought up foster care and... Something that got me thinking about foster care was a company you mentioned of ours called Hop Skip Drive. They're an LA-based technology transportation company. They started as an Uber-type service for families in childcare. They're the only service across the country that fingerprints their drivers. So they can drive children. uh, They target community leaders as their drivers. It's a whole password protected situation when the kids get in the car. It's much safer. They have really strict protocol they have to follow. And then um, they started also driving for the foster care systems across the country one by one, because in order to go to school or go to any opportunity a foster child is given, they have to have government provided transportation. And that's really crazy to me because I was hearing about, I sit on the board of an organization called Project Glimmer that helps foster children and mentors them. And these girls were not able to attend events because they didn't have government provided transportation. And these were events that would really further their careers, et cetera. And so when you realize, you can invest and solve problems with where you're putting your capital and make money. I think that's also like a beautiful thing. And so sometimes we'll look at issues and problems that we want to solve and figure out what is, what are the major players there and what needs to be fixed and find those companies uh, and kind of go the other way.
0: How do you think about Being the first mover in a new category.
1: I think it always comes back to the team. And even during COVID, you know, we, it was really tough in the first couple of weeks because we had to change our entire investment philosophy where you're like, okay, uh, I've spent years putting together this investment thesis and our diligence list. And I now have to basically create an entirely new investment thesis in a week uh, for all of our companies. And like, what does that look like? And when my team and I sat down and talked about it, we realized, I mean, we basically then invested in three criteria. It was like, based on our experience with these founders that we've already invested in, can they execute, can they take this all the way? And then we had a couple of other things that we looked for, but you know, you're really betting on these people because I didn't anticipate I was gonna go into an international pandemic, nor did anybody else. But then we looked at our portfolio and we realized we were so lucky that we had bet on these people who, I was always focused on like coachability and being open and like, what if that manufacturer shut down? What are you gonna do then? Like, how are you going to diversify? You need multiple revenue streams, not just one. And I always was thinking, like, I don't want someone who's stuck in their ways. That's like my biggest red flag when I'm investing. And so I'll throw these crazy ideas out. One of might one might have been like, what if there was an international pandemic? (laughs) And so our founders, we found are all very versatile. And when I sat down or sat down on Zoom with as many of them as I could that first week, I realized they were so far ahead. They were like, we saw a hit to revenue last week. So we're now doing this. And then we realized if this happens, we can launch this other revenue stream. And then, okay, now we're a media company too. Um, And they were so thoughtful. They inspired me and it it was like going into COVID. I was like, I feel as though I'm a psychic and this is going to be so bad and no one sees it. And then I talked to all of our companies and I was so inspired because It's the entrepreneurs that are going to get us out of it, out of this. It's these creative, innovative technology entrepreneurs that are going to build back up our society um, and solve all of these
0: problems. Are you finding it hard right now to find conviction within founders since you have to meet with them remotely?
1: After we made sure that all of our companies were okay, we actually have started investing in new companies. We're in early stage, so we realized a lot of other funds are like sitting on their capital and going to be incredibly predatory because they're a later stage and they can do that. And their valuations are going to take big hits, but we realize we're in early stage. Our valuations aren't going to change that much. Like we get in under a 10 typically. So uh, like if you go under a, you know, for, it's almost criminal sometimes. So we are actively investing, and we are meeting new founders through Zoom. And in that case, we just take extra precautions. We call a lot more references. We we have had a few cases where like one of my team members had met them or seen them speak at something. So we felt like okay, I guess that sort of touches a base. Um, but I think it's just really important about checking references and. Spending a lot more time with them on Zoom because I think the more conversations you have with them the more things kind of come out and, um, you know, just trying to be as real as you can, Um, you know, having coffee break with them or uh, calling them on a whim and being like, let's hop on FaceTime, just like surprising them, which is terrifying for all of them. I think things like that are are helpful, too. Um, And I've actually closed new investors for our fund on Zoom, who I've never met as well. I didn't think that was going to happen. I was like, okay, we'll just pause fundraising or whatever. And, you know, I don't know how COVID is going to treat this. and. We just realized people still were willing to have conversations. People have time. They're at home. And so, yeah, some have moved pretty fast. It's been pretty crazy. I think you just have to be accessible and on Zoom. Yes, happy to hop on a call. Can I answer any questions? And, you know, make sure you're showing your face, I guess. That's been interesting.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. I don't think I've had uh, someone yet that that has fundraised during COVID. So it's really exciting. That's great. So what's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it?
1: Oh, I have so many, but some I feel like I can't even tell you about yet. I'm so excited about them. I, you know, we did just do a really cool ed tech investment that is called Toucan. um, And it's focused on learning other languages in a way where you're just kind of on your screen and you're doing your normal thing, like googling things like how to clean your makeup brushes, and then this little pop-up. You say like, "I want to learn Spanish" or whatever, and then you do the you plug. It's like a desktop plugin for now, and you you start learning Spanish words just kind of by accident. They make it this really organic experience where you're just reading your normal normal articles, and they'll have a little pop-up that kind of teaches you a little bit about how to speak Spanish or talk about makeup brushes in Spanish or whatever it is. And it's really fun. It's a really cool product, and I'm the team's killer. And I am so excited about where that's headed because you look at education right now, we're about to see sadly a lot of the private liberal arts schools shut down. And how are we all going to be educated? And how are our kids going to be educated? And we're about to see just education tr- transform, and we really need it to because education is, I think, what solves everyone's problems in the entire world. Uh, so we need to make sure that everyone is as well educated as they can be. And, and unfortunately, um, COVID is definitely taking a lot of that away from us
0: it sounds like a really fascinating company what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally
1: i think i mentioned this book earlier today but i i just finished to the end of june by chris beam all about the foster care system and that has inspired me personally to do more professionally to support the foster care system i think because there's so many issues in the world i feel like the foster care system there's 600,000 kids in the united states foster care system and to me that's a solvable problem, 600,000 people. Like That's a solvable problem. So I just like solvable problems. So that has inspired me. I recommend everyone read it. And um, it, she interviewed just hundreds of foster families and foster children, so it's very well researched, very well written. Um, and then, so I would say that was just a personal sort of journey I've taken. Professionally, I love High Growth Startup by Elad Gill. If you are running a startup, I think it's great. They have a sort of a chapter on everything. And I just think I've read a lot of those business books with like a startup perspective, founder perspective and investor perspective. And he does a nice job of kind of uh, teaching you about all of it and what you should be thinking about and giving you the good and the bad. It's not like too biased in one way. And so if you're a startup founder, I would definitely recommend that book.
0: Awesome. Well- we, so we have a book page. No past guest has mentioned either of these books. So really excited to add these onto the book, onto the book page.
1: I'm a unique butterfly. So, I, so I'm so happy that I could share these two books. But I, I'm also like an avid reader. So I love, I just read all the time. I'm reading like Just Mercy right now because um, this, this a lot of people are reading right now. But um, that's another really good book people should read. Yeah, High Growth Handbook. Sorry, sorry Elad. High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill. And it's just like one of those good kind of reference books that you want on your desk all the time, because you're like, what should my board of directors look like? Or, you know, how do I like kind of think about growth versus profitability? Like, how do I think about that? And, and it has real information and Q&As with um, all sorts of great people too. So it has like real, real feedback to back everything up.
0: No, that's awesome. That's I mean, and and those are very important issues for for uh, for founders. That's great. My last question that I asked the folks is what what's one piece? What's one piece of advice that you have for founders?
1: One is do your research. But whenever um, I think of founders, I think I love being an investor, and I take pitches all day long. And there will be days where I'll take 10 pitches back to back because it's just an efficient way to do it. But as a founder, um, you always think, as I mentioned, I was a new, unique butterfly, uh, because I chose two different books, but as a founder, you always think you're this like unique butterfly and that your company is unique and you should keep thinking that way. Cause it is, but the biggest opportunity you have is when you sit in front of an investor and you say, like, I'll, I'll say, who are your competitors? And they'll be like, Oh, we have no competitors. I'm like, yes, you do. But the biggest opportunity you have is to one, ask the investor something about themselves, But two, ask them specifically, what else have you seen like my company recently? Because we see thousands of deals a year and I think everyone thinks that they're the only one. And so... It's like every once in a while that happens, but usually it's like, oh, I saw five like these, like this. I saw five of these, you know, last month or whatever. And I think it's important to know going in that that's an opportunity for you. You should know about all of these competitors Um, and investors really like are in the know. So I think if you were going to ask a a question of an investor, that would be a a good one to ask.
0: It's very original. We actually haven't heard that piece of advice yet either. So that's great. Well, Jesse, this has been really great. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I really appreciate it.
1: Anytime. I love a good talk show. And I ran a talk show. I'm a big fan of your talk show. So um, thank you for having me. Anytime.
0: And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having on Jesse. Jesse, thanks so much again. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at Jessie Draper. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.